Welcome to the 401k Podcast. I am your host, Fernando Rincon Jr. This is our third episode, and we felt that the uh, next discussion of our podcast series should be about the initial step uh, that is required to becoming a 401k plan sponsor. Now, uh, this initial step, uh, sometimes it's overlooked by... uh, smaller, newer uh, plant sponsors or just business owners that are interested in sponsoring a 401k plan. And by the initial step, what I'm referring to is the actual design of a 401k plan. And as I mentioned, this this is an important step. And just there's just times where you know this step is overlooked by small business owners for various reasons they're either too busy and that's understandable um being a small business owner you might um you know have to wear multiple hats not you're not only doing the actual service that generates revenue but you're also doing back office functions like payroll um, accounting things like that or um you might be too embarrassed to even talk about potentially designing a customized 401k plan because you may, you may not be well informed. You don't want to seem stupid in front of a consultant. Um, and these are things that um, you know really do happen in the real world. But the important thing to know is that whatever the case may be um, for the lack of involvement in this initial step, it's important to note that the Department of Labor and the Internal Revenue Service does not accept any excuse for a poorly designed 401k plan. And this is important because the consequences of having a poorly designed plan can result in one, the disqualification of the 401k plan's qualified tax exemption, two, heavy tax penalties, and three, potential litigations uh, from your uh, employees. Now, in contrast, a properly designed 401k plan is one that achieves the opposite. One, it achieves the plan sponsor saving goals. Two, it simultaneously passes non-discrimination tests. And three, it does all of this while maintaining its qualified tax exemption. So with all of that said, let's begin our third episode. So in order to fully grasp the steps of a plan design, Um, we have to make a fake uh, client. So in this episode, we're going to create a fictitious new client. So let's pretend that this is a small plumbing service company. Let's assume that their business entity is a sole proprietor. And what that means is basically for tax reporting purposes, the actual owner and the actual business are treated as one entity for tax uh, reporting purposes. Now, um, let's also assume uh, that it's just one owner and two employees, non-highly compensated employees, non-owners. And because this is a fictitious sole proprietor, uh, it is mandated that all sole proprietors follow the same uh, calendar year end as regular tax filers 
meaning their tax filing tax filing due date would be April 15th, just like any other non-business owner that's just a regular tax-paying U.S. citizen. Another assumption, um, let's assume that this plumbing service company has been in service has been in business for three years, and let's also assume that the owner's yearly compensation is $100,000, and the employee's compensation is $50,000 per employee. So that's our fictitious plumbing service company. Now, let's also assume that the owner's retirement goals is to maximize uh, their personal annual contributions, which would be their Internal Revenue Code 415 limit. And for 2019, I believe the annual limit is $56,000 per participant. Well, technically, it's actually the lesser of 100% of compensation or $56,000, which would be the 2019 annual limit, not including um, catch-up contributions, which I believe is an additional $6,000. And the uh, second retirement goal uh, would be to minimize uh, any obligations uh, to uh, his or her employees' uh, annual contributions. So hypothetical company is a plumbing service company, small business, three employees, only been in business for three years. Let's assume every year uh, this owner hired someone on board, picking up business, retirement goals. Uh, Business owner wants to maximize his own 401k account and also minimize any obligations to his or her employees. So with that said, Um, let's begin the 401k plan design for this fictitious company. Now, um, when you think of 401k plan design, uh, whether you're a, you know, whether you're a small business owner, mid-sized business owner, whether you're a plan sponsor, non-plan sponsor, help, whether you're a financial advisor or even a consultant, retirement plan consultant, lots of times people get a little bit, um, intimidated, uh, by thinking about, uh, 401k plan design. And um, rightfully so, uh, it may seem complex, it may seem like rocket science, but in a nutshell, it's not. Um, you just have to know what you're doing. Uh, you need to know enough in regards to compliance testing, uh, compliance reporting, to be able to write a basic uh, plan design. And by writing a basic plan design, all I'm saying is you're able to read a checklist, um, and the checklist is very straightforward, black or white. Here's your options for A, B, or C. Whichever one you select is going to be in your plan document, which the plan document is the plan design. So that's all it is. It's really going through a checklist, um, a very detailed checklist, selecting selecting the options that you want to um, have in your 401k plan document, which is like your Bible for your 401k plan with all the rules and all the options and benefits. And also you need to be able to run projections before you finalize a plan document to ensure that the plan rules and the plan options that you're selecting will pass uh, the non-discrimination tests using projections and also ensuring that your employer, I'm sorry, um, ensuring that your client is reaching their goals. But it's not very complex. You just have to know what you're doing.
So let's begin. Um, I am going to be uh, assuming that this plumbing service company um, is going to hold its assets with a record keeper and to allow uh, more liberal uh, interpretations. Um, we're going to assume that um, the type of document we're going to use is a volume submitter document. And the thing about a volume submitter document, plan document, is that um, there's a lot of uh, boiler template verbiage or a lot of uh, generalized verbiage that allows uh, some flexibility uh, in regards to uh, testing, eligibility requirements, corrections, etc. So first thing we need to do is we need to decide what type of plan this client is going to get. So assuming that, you know, both employees of this fictitious company are happy and they're good employees, let's assume that the owner, just like any other owner, wants to keep these employees and not have them run off to the next competitor. So to draw an incentive, you're going to want to offer a 401k feature. Why? Because it doesn't really cost a plan sponsor much to offer a 401k feature because this is these are contributions that are going to be coming directly from each employee's paycheck, which um, he or she as a business, business owner is still going to process bi-weekly or whatever the pay period may be. Uh, it just, all it takes is an additional administrative step and there might be some minor cost associated with record keeper fees, but those can be passed along to the um, employees. So we're going to pretend that this uh, plan wants a 401k profit sharing plan. And so with that being determined, um, even though you have a 401k plan, um, you can actually offer various types of contributions uh, in the plan. For example, you can offer pre-tax 401k money. You can offer Roth 401k money. You can even offer what's not very used. It's not commonly used anymore, but you can use after-tax money, which is not Roth. It's after-tax money. The difference is that after-tax money is basically money that's already taxed and you're just contributing to the 401k plan. Um, as opposed to Roth, Roth is a little different where you pay your taxes up front, but then you have to have the money sit in your retirement plan for about five years. And after five years, any earnings that you gain on the on that Roth contributions is now pre-taxed, whereas after tax, completely different. So uh, with this assumption being such a small company, um, most small companies this size tend to keep it very simple with very limited uh, options for contribution types. So we're just going to keep it simple, 401k pre-tax salary deferrals, um, as well as a safe harbor non-elective 3% contribution, which um, for those that aren't familiar with this type of money contribution, what that means is each year the plan sponsor um, has two options. They can either do a discretionary safe harbor non-elective contribution or a mandated safe harbor 3% non-elective contribution. Both are very similar except one is a maybe and the other one's a for sure you have to do the contribution. And the way that it works is each year um, this owner or you as the owner, assuming you're a business owner, 
would um, contribute and allocate 3% of each employee's compensation. So for example, let's say you have an employee that makes 100 bucks a year. Out of those 100 bucks, you're gonna contribute $3, which is 3% of the 100 bucks. So each year you're gonna contribute three bucks to this employee, assuming his salary stays at 100 bucks a year. And each year you're gonna contribute three bucks to his or her account. And they're always gonna be 100% entitled to that three bucks that you're, that you're um, contributing. Why would I suggest this for this hypothetical uh, plan sponsor? Well, because the employer wants to maximize his own personal um, 401k account uh, and minimize his employees uh, 401k accounts. And in order to maximize his accounts um, and also ensure that the plan is passing non-discrimination tests while maintaining his qualified tax exemption, um, he would have to, at the bare minimum, give a 3% non-elective contribution to his employers, I'm sorry, to his employees to pass several tests, top-heavy test, ADP ACP test, as well as the um, coverage test, actually, and also the uh, general non-discrimination test. So that guarantees passage, as well as giving this employer uh, some, uh, some space to allow him to allocate an additional 6% of profiteering money into his or her own account, which would then give him 9% of contribution allocation and minimizing a guaranteed 3% allocation of his or her employees or work staff. And what that does is that it allows this plan to pass the minimum gateway uh, test, which is part of the three-part test of the general non-discrimination test, 401A4. So, those are the reasons for selecting salary deferrals, safe harbor non-elective 3% contributions, and a profit-sharing non-elective contribution um, top-tiered, meaning uh, each employee um, has their own group, meaning you can discriminate, discriminate against each group um, in regards to allocation amounts uh, as long as you pass certain tasks. So, so far, we've decided to make this into a 401k profit-sharing plan, allowing salary deferrals pre-tax, allowing safe harbor, uh, mandated safe harbor 3% non-elective contributions, and also allowing um, non-elective profit-sharing contributions. Uh, with that said, uh, scrolling down this checklist, um, you would then have to provide your employer information, you know, company name, company address, phone number, fax number, your employer identification number, general stuff, as well as the type of business entity that you are running. Bear with me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is going to be a very long-ass podcast. Oh, it is really early. All right, so let's see here. So for example, uh, going back to the form of business, it's important to identify the correct type of business that uh, you are operating, uh, meaning business entity, whether you're a C corporation, partnership, sole proprietor, S corporation, LLC, tax exempt entity, whatever. Why is it important? Because in the plan document, if you are running as a C corporation, 
common type of um, compensation would be W-2 wages. Or if you're a sole proprietor, well, typically as the owner of a sole proprietor, you would be reporting Schedule C income uh, through your 1040 form. Um, and you can even offer a different type of compensation to your employees, which can be a W-2 uh, comp. Or if you're a partnership, I mean, you're going to report K-1, uh, K-1 money. So it's important because each type of business entity has a different definition of compensation for tax purposes. And that transitions into plan, uh, plan purposes for compliance purpose testing. So it's important to ensure that you input the right form of business. Okay, let's go to the next page. Tax year end. So um, being a sole proprietor for this plumbing service company, um, as I mentioned, the mandated tax year end would be December 31st. Um, depending on your business entity, if you're a C corporation, you have a little bit of leeway to decide if you want a fiscal year end or a calendar year end. Fiscal year end meaning anything but December 31st. So it could be January 30. It could be January 15th, February 15th, whatever. Now, uh, for this hypothetical client, um, really it would make sense to just keep the calendar year the same as the plan year end, uh, which would be December 31st. Reason being is the definition of compensation and the amount of compensation earned between the within the calendar year will be the same for the corporate the corporation's uh, tax fine purposes and for the plan compliance purposes slash tax purposes. So uh, select your tax year end. Uh, next on this checklist would be your plan name, um, which can be different than your actual corporation name. So for example, if you're XYZ company, um, you can sponsor a plan that's named ABC company. It doesn't really have to be the same name as your corporation, but I highly recommend that it's a plan name that you are proud of, nothing stupid, um, something that um, you know, you're not gonna second second think about because once the, once the name is on the plan, um, in order to erase it, put another name, you're gonna have to amend the plan. That's gonna cost like 500 bucks. So choose a name that you're gonna be um, proud of. Um, also, you're gonna have to uh, select a plan number uh, for the plan document. What's a plan number? Basically, it's just the number of qualified retirement plans that you have already sponsored. So this fictitious uh, company, this is this is their brand this is a brand new plan. It uh, never sponsored another qualified retirement plan. so the plan number would be one. So 001 because it's their first qualified 401k plan. Just give me a sec guys. I'm gonna drink some coffee. Okay. Next on this checklist would be the plan administrator's information. Now, it's important to ensure that you don't get confused with your TPA information and you as a trustee's information. Because at the end of the day, the plan document states that the plan administrator is the trustee, aka the plan sponsor, aka the owner of the company. TPA firms, um, are not the quote true plan administrator they're just third-party administrator and as I mentioned in my previous podcast TPAs basically just take marching orders that are given 
to the plan sponsor within legal limits. So plan administrator is and always will be the employer unless you have a 316 fiduciary and a 338 fiduciary, which like I mentioned, we will discuss in my next podcast at some point in the future. Okay, let's scroll down. Next checklist. So now we're going to talk about designing eligibility requirements, designing and ensuring that only certain employees um, get to participate in the plan. Now, um, exclusions. Some some companies basically will exclude certain employees, certain staff from participating in their plan. For example, uh, collectively bargained employees, such as union employees, will typically most of the time have their own union plan, so they're excluded um, from the non-union plans, or sometimes certain employers will spawn, will hire uh, foreigners, um, uh, like people from India for programming positions, IT positions, or people from South America um, if they're you know a, a farming um, entity. And for plan purposes, you are able to exclude non-resident aliens because if you're a non-resident alien, and I hate to use the word alien, I'd like to say non-resident employee, um, you're not, you really don't have the rights of a U.S. employee, unfortunately, just immigration law. So you can exclude those types of groups, um, as well as least employees. Least employees meaning um, those that are uh, hired through a staffing agency uh, within limits, um, you are able to exclude these employees. Uh, going back to this hypothetical uh, client, I mean, it's just three guys or three females, I don't discriminate. Um, three, you know, non-binary employees, whatever. So um, in this situation, this plumbing service company uh, situation, uh, it really doesn't make sense to exclude anybody because it's so small and because, I mean, it's a small company. So the more liberal it'll be with its um, non-exclusion, the higher of a chance it'll have to pass testing. Um, and like we mentioned, testing can get a little icky if it's a, a non-safe harbor plan. Scrolling down to, let's see, service requirements. Um, service requirements basically means that you have to satisfy certain certain things to participate in the plan. Typically, for mid-sized companies, you'll have a minimum age requirement. Typically, minimum 18 years of age or older. 21 is mostly commonly used, as well as ensuring that you're employed for at least 12 months and that you satisfy at least a thousand hours of service for this company it makes no sense it makes very little sense to restrict um any requirements because it's only three people now we're using a conservative approach here um it's very un- it's very unlikely unlikely that this hypothetical company is going to boom in the next year and hire 50 employees so like i mentioned just to ensure that the plan passes uh, testing um, sometimes it's best to just provide liberal um, eligibility requirements now 
because it is a safe harbor plan i mean more than likely it will pass testing if you do have restricted uh minimum age and service requirements but i wouldn't um i wouldn't elect those um requirements just because it's so small okay let's go to the next page and design okay age requirement we talked about that special eligibility rules hmm. so what are special eligibility rules basically when you're designing a plan sometimes you'll have a plan sponsor um, begin a plan mid-year sometimes they'll um, have a plan that'll begin on December 1st 2018-2019 but um, they may have employees that have worked you know five six years already and the plan might have you know they might have elected the service requirements so what that what that means is if you don't select a special eligibility rules clarifying that as of the date of 12 1 assuming that you know this plan would start on 12 1 um, that all employees hired on that date would be able to enter the plan without satisfying the requirements um, that could really create um, some animosity animosity uh, whatever you know what I mean uh, amongst the employees that have been there for five six years so what the special eligibility rules does is that it can exclude um, though it can basically give those that are already employed on a certain date a free pass from satisfying uh, the minimum age and service requirements of the plan um, which would only apply to those hired after the special entry date Again, like I said um, this plumbing service company um, because we're deciding not to have uh, any actual requirements to enter the plan um, special entry dates is not necessarily needed okay let's see here next uh, entry dates I mean entry dates is basically when you enter the plan you have so many options semi-annually quarterly first day of each calendar month first day of payroll period it just really depends but we're going to keep it simple small plan so the best thing would be is to just enter the plan as of your first day or immediate basically it's the immediate election once you're employed you know you're in um, and again only because this plan is so small um, you know using a conservative approach it's very unlikely that there's going to be a new employee or several new employees within the next year or so so immediate entry is very liberal makes things very simple uh, next um, there's different eligibility rules um, for each type of money source so what does that mean well as I mentioned um, there is a uh, different um, requirements to receive um, basically to receive the benefits to contribute uh, to the plan under different money sources so for example 401k plan may say okay in order to participate in the 401k deferrals you have to you know uh, satisfy one year of service meaning 12 months of service and satisfy 1,000 hours um, in order to in order to receive employer match 
Um, it can it can either be the same as the moment you defer, or it can be in order to be eligible to receive employer match, you have to then satisfy six months of service or satisfy two years of service. Um, and the same thing with employer non-elective contributions. It could be three years of service, six months of service. Um, it just depends on each money source, but each money source can be tweaked to have its own eligibility requirements. Again, this plan is simple. So we're gonna keep the salary deferral requirements as well as the employer non-elective requirements the same, um, which really means there is no requirements. Everyone that gets employed is eligible to enter the plan immediately and thus eligible to defer and receive non-elective employer contributions. Next, okay. Let's see. Um, predecessor employer service. Sometimes um, you we might run into a larger plan or a larger employer who um, recently was acquired by a new owner. And sometimes when a older business is acquired by a newer business, um, more than often the previous owner would have a 401k plan, a pension plan, and the newly acquired business would also have a separate 401k plan or pension plan. And that can cause some issues uh, in regards to higher admin costs, higher record keeping costs if both plans are not merged. So uh, to ensure that one, uh, administrative costs are in control and also ensuring that there's no conflict of interest um, regarding vesting calculations, eligibility requirements, um, it's usually highly recommended to identify predecessor employers um, to allow liberal eligibility entrance. Um, so what that means is the previous uh, employer um, might have employees that have been there for 10 years, newly acquired employer, um, might, have a, might have a 401k plan, and uh, in order to recognize the newly acquired employees that were working for the previous employer, they might have a special predecessor employer service clause, which would basically recognize the five, six years of service that they worked um, from the previous employer. So it's basically a fancy way of saying that they'll recognize the service of um, those employees that were bought out by the newly acquired business. Damn, this is going to be a one long ass podcast. Okay. Next, total compensation. Just like we said, total compensation is going to depend a lot on one, um, the business entity. So, if you're a C corporation, more often than not, it's W 2 wages for the employees. Um, business owners are also considered employees under C corp um, partnership, though different K 1, uh, schedule K 1 income. Um, sole proprietors, Schedule C, profit and loss, uh, statements. Also, um, excuse me. So it just depends on the type of business entity that you have. Now, for planned compensation purposes, uh, 
there's two types of compensations. There's something called 415 comp, and then there's non-415 comp. 415 comp basically means that you are going to count basically um, just about everything as compensation, W-2 wages, bonuses, commission, fringe benefits, things like that. Or if you exclude something, bonuses, commissions, uh, to a certain group and to another group, usually management, you don't exclude, then there'll be a separate test that has to be passed to ensure that the uh, discrimination amongst the two different definitions of compensation isn't more than 3% um, of a difference between those that have the additional benefit and those that have uh, lesser compensation reported because you're not including um, you know, commission, bonuses, whatever. But again, small company, small plumbing service company, um, three participants only. It makes sense to, to keep a 415 comp definition because it's a small company. It's not a Fortune 500 company. Okay. Next item would be post-severance compensation. What that means is, um, do you exclude or include post-severance compensation? So let's say you have an employee that terminated on December 31st, 2018. And when he or she terminated, uh, within two and a half months of termination, they received a severance package, which would include accrued vacation, accrued sick time, you know, bonuses that, you know, weren't paid. Will that or will that not be included in your uh, compliance testing for that particular year? So if you include post-severance comp, the answer is yes. If, if you include it. If you exclude it, the answer is no. Okay. Plan comp. Um, like we said, plan comp is um, very detailed. So you can have a lot of flexibility flexibility with plan comp. So you can exclude certain things. You don't have to exclude certain things. It's a plumbing service company. So we're not going to exclude nothing. Compensation period. What does that mean, compensation period? Basically, what that means is um, when you're doing your testing, um, you have to determine what your measurements are going to be in regards to measuring compensation for your, ta for your testing uh, reports. So what that means is, you know, you can have a plan that has the same plan year end as your corporate year end, let's say calendar year ends. But for testing purposes, instead of measuring your calendar year time frame, you're gonna measure just a physical time frame for uh, plan compensation. Makes it, it makes it a little bit more harder administrative wise to um, be able to run tests. So for this example, we're just gonna keep everything under the same time frame which would be uh, calendar year, excuse me. Okay, let's see what else we have. Um, let's see, employer contribution formulas. Oh, 
So what is a employer contribution formula? So for this hypothetical uh, client, um, as we had previously mentioned, there's three types of money sources that we've elected. 401k, pre-tax money, non-profit, uh, sorry, non-elective profit sharing money, and then a mandated uh, annual 3% non-elective safe harbor contribution. So the only one that you, there's really leeway in regards to uh, for, formula-wise would be the non-elective uh, uh, non-elective profit-sharing contributions. So in regards to employer contribution formulas, you can choose uh, either a discretionary contribution or you can use a fixed rate, a fixed dollar amount, a fixed percentage of plant compensation. Um, it's really dependent on the owner and how he or she wants to set up the actual formula for determining the amount. For this situation, it would be best to select discretionary because based on, um, based on each year's uh, profits, the employer may or may not be able to afford this additional non-elective discretionary contribution. So the formula would be discretionary to determine the amount. Now to determine the allocation, this would be, uh, this plan would use a top tiered, also known as new comparability plan, which basically means that the highly compensated employee, which would be the owner, would be in its own group. Non-highly compensated employees would be in their second group. And because this employer is offering a mandated 3% safe harbor of non-elective contribution, that would allow him or her an additional 6% of profit sharing contribution allocations, resulting in a 9% allocation of employer contributions versus a minimal of 3% of uh, employer contributions for non-highly compensated employees, which theoretically would and should pass the minimum gateway test because of the one-third provision. So that's how we're going to set up our profit sharing contribution formula. Next page. Let's see here. Service contributions. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Just skipping. There's a lot of verbiage here that doesn't apply to our... Um, doesn't apply to our hypothetical client. We already talked about location formula. Uh, we talked about that. Let's see. Okay. So, um, when you have a, um, when you have different types of contributions, uh, and I'm referring to just employer contributions, you can also set conditions uh, for an employee to receive an allocation. So for example, um, this hypothetical company, this plumbing service company uh, that only has three participants, which includes the owner, there is Eligibility requirements, which in this case, it'll be liberal, uh, immediate entry, uh, just because it's so small, and uh, it would need to uh, satisfy 
um, basically a allocation condition uh, to receive uh, profit sharing money, for example. So the nice thing is the employer has a couple options. It can either include some provisions uh, in which the employees would have to satisfy before receiving a discretionary profit share money if the owner elects to allocate something to them. And it can be the same thing as the eligibility requirements to even enter the plan, which would be, uh, it could be either service, um, how many hours did they work? Uh, it could be length of time of employment. So sometimes profit sharing contribution allocation conditions can be set to where an employee has to be employed at the last day of the plan year. Um, to receive an allocation or it could be so liberal as to just having to work one hour um, and they'll receive an allocation. Again, this plan is um, designed in such a way where the employer is maximizing his and contributions, minimizing employee uh, contributions and passing testing without by reducing the chances of failure through two means, one offering a mandated safe harbor and elective contribution, 3% of comp, and then also offering uh, liberal, very liberal, uh, actually non-existing eligibility conditions to enter the plan. The nice thing about the um, profit sharing is that this employer could theoretically um, add a allocation requirement. So they might he might decide that maybe in two, three years, anyone that's employed at the last day of that particular plan year, um, those employees might receive, you know, a certain amount of allocations through profit share money. But um, as of right now, we're just gonna leave it alone. So let's get next page. Okay, just a lot of crap I gotta read through here. Like I mentioned previously, checklists are very detailed for various reasons. All right, so we are now are gonna talk about limits, limiting salary deferral contributions. Again, when you're designing a plan, you're customizing a plan, you can set plan limits to uh, certain groups of employees or to all employees. Um, and you can select certain contributions or all contributions um, within plan limits. So typically, um, a larger plan would limit salary deferral percentages, different percentages to its highly compensated employees. Why? Because, as I mentioned in my last podcast, highly compensated employees defer way more money than non-highly compensated employees because, well, they have more money. Um, you know, they have more more cash to set aside for the nest egg, whereas non-highly compensated employees tend to live paycheck to paycheck. That's just the way it is. Um, they tend to, um, you know, just have enough to pay the bills and, you know, pay for schooling if they're single or pay for their child's, uh, you know, daycare. It's a real bitch out there. So that's, that's just the way it is. So usually larger plans, publicly traded companies will have certain limits on highly compensated employees to ensure that one ADP ACP test passes and reduces the chances of uh, any refunds to be made on those highly compensated employees. 
and ensures that certain other tests pass as well, uh, like the uh, general test. So um, in this case, small company, there's no need to there's no need to um, impose any limits. Okay. Um, also, you get the chance to either elect to allow a plan to offer catch-up contributions or not. It, it makes no sense if you choose not to. Excuse me, I'm trying not to burp in the in the mic. I just had a big aspirato. Um, in this in this in this uh, scenario, I mean, it's a small plan. Um, I mean, catch-up contributions benefit, you know, those that are 50 years of age. It benefits not just non. It benefits not just highly compensated employees, but also non-highly compensated employees because when you run your ADP ACB test, those catch-up contribution contributions aren't even taken into consideration. Uh, same with annual additions test, um, as well as top-heavy tests. So leave it alone and allow catch-up contributions. <clears throat> 